Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hey, Micah. Welcome to another week of the Weekly Typographic. December edition. Oh my gosh. Every time you do this to me, I'm shocked. Just by saying the date or even the month of the date, I can't handle it. I love it. Well, it's my favorite season of the year, so I am soaking up every bit of Decemberness every single day. Listening to Christmas music. I got my gingerbread house set. Hmm. I'm going to put up my garland soon. Got some Christmas lights up. Got everything in order. I am a happy lady for the next 25 or so days. It's on and off snowing outside. I'm sitting where I can look out the window and there's at least a little bit of snow on the ground. So that's a good sign. It's really pretty. I wish we had that here someday soon. Maybe it was last year or the year before. I feel like you really changed the trajectory of the league's December. Oh, yeah. We have a good tradition going now where we're going to be doing a couple weeks of recapping the coolest stuff from the year. Mm-hmm. And we have a special nerd alert, too, this week, which is kind yes. of unique and interesting for us. What the heck is going on? What a seamless segue. So, very excited to announce on the podcast here. You heard it first. (laughs) We will be running a Pricing for Creatives workshop in January, January 8th and 9th. We're also announcing this pretty early on. We know December can be hectic for people. We'd rather kind of get you before you're sucked into the holiday things. And right at the top of 2022, we can just start thinking about how we want to be intentional with our pricing. So the class will be run by the lovely Jasmine Holmes, who is like a total pricing queen and design extraordinaire, as we like to say. And she'll be talking from her experience, but she also has created all these methods to help you reconfigure how you think about your pricing as a freelancer and as a creative, whether you're a full-time freelancer, whether you're a part-time freelancer. We think this is just going to be super helpful. She like totally flipped a switch in our mind on how to price for value during her talk at Type Weekend. And I think we're really going to be looking at people at your individual rates if you come to the workshop and what impacts those numbers and how you can raise your rate and get the money you deserve. That is a great point. And I'm really glad you mentioned it specifically that it's going to be as interactive as we can make it. She's really good going off the cuff with stuff like that. Like she has a lot prepared And she's excellent at being prepared and teaching information. But also part of it is going to be people hopefully volunteering and being like, hey, this is what I do. This is what I am struggling with. How can we massage this and make this better? And I think that is a very unique opportunity, I think, that a lot of us just have not had. Like somebody who knows what they're talking about to be like, hey, this is how you should do things differently. Yeah. And that's happening January 8th and 9th, right? Yes. A little bit different than our usual time. It will be happening 5 p.m. to 6.30 Eastern to accommodate Jazz's time zone of being in Australia. But hopefully you guys can all make it. You can mark your calendars nice and early. You can go ahead and start signing up. Mike and I will be there. I'm so excited to soak in her knowledge. And like, she's just such an enthusiastic person. You'll hear from her later in this episode. So you'll understand why she's so amazing and her amazing sense of humor but definitely go check it out and you know reach out if you have any questions about it 
Yeah. So not only talking about the workshop, but we're also saying she is the feature nerd alert where she's kind of going to dive into three of the things that kind of can trip you up as you're thinking about your own pricing in, in any creative field. So it's kind of fun to have like a featured nerd alert this week. I'm excited. Yeah. Changing it up. December edition. <laughs> <laughs> there is a link to that workshop in the email if you haven't gotten it yet. And you should see us talking about that plenty over the next month. Absolutely. I've been excited about this one for weeks and it just now is making an appearance. So basically the head of design at Apple helped um, shape Apple products into what we know today. He left Apple, I think, several years back. I can't tell you exact numbers. Um, he started his own design collective called Love From. And this article from Fast Company features one of his first public projects that he has now come out with. And it's a seal for Terra Carta, the environmental initiative spearheaded by Prince Charles himself. And it is a seal. That is what is showcased mostly in this article but there is so much happening in this seal. It feels like something from the arts and crafts movement. There mm. are vines. There is nature. There is typography. There is insects interacting with the typography. There are seven interlocking vines within this seal. And it's just like nothing you really ever see these days. It really does feel like from a different era, except incredibly, incredibly crafted. Yeah. I remember when this popped up. I was like, gosh, that is beautiful. And I, I haven't like there's been so many trends in design in the last few years. And this is one that I have not seen in such a long time. Somebody making work like this. And then I realized who it was from. And I was like, oh, finally, because I remember we had shared at one point that, you know, Johnny, I've had made this new agency or firm or whatever they're calling it. And there's just absolutely no description about what it was or what they were doing or anything. And so for them to finally do something that comes out as this beautiful and different, so different from the Johnny Ive that we are used to, where it was all minimal and sleek and the curves and, you know, we removed all of the bezels and everything. And I'm positive that he was not the only designer working on this, but it's very cool to see something just going in the exact opposite, beautiful, decorative, elaborate direction totally i think it's like a very interesting just thing to examine for a bit i mean the article talks about how the seven interlocking circles hint at a bauhaus sensibility that was like very much is was grounded apple in a way in their design principles but the ornateness totally brings it to a whole different le level completely and the letter forms themselves are influenced by Baskerville's innovation and they actually studied his punches and matrices to develop the shapes that are seen in the letter forms and love from serif is actually the typeface they're using in this and they've developed that themselves so it just seems like we're just going to be seeing lots of really beautiful typography, lots of beautiful illustration, and I'm I'm excited to see what else this collective makes. I got to say, too, I just I love the way that this breaks all the rules that they teach you in art school while mm -hmm. still looking like something that they would highlight in art school. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. like this is it's so well done that they would totally put this up on a wall and be like, this is what you should be reaching for. At the same time, you look at these like close ups and there's detailed like shaded ladybugs that are crawling along the letter like 
absolutely intricate little illustrations embedded in this seal. There's gradients and you can see it when they highlight it with and without the color and it still works. Yeah, that was the most mind blowing part. So the logo itself was obviously designed in color. That's like how it was meant to be. And I think Johnny Ive says specifically, many logo marks tend to be very binary, black and white, and they speak to being quite exclusive. And so this whole breaking the rules, like you said, with all the colors, with just like bringing everything into this one mark, but then also like having it still live as a one color piece is mind blowing. I'm obviously a fanboy now, so. I'm glad we're both fan fanboys and girls here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That makes me happy. I feel like it does probably just touch two parts of both of our hearts that really like <laughs> this type of design. I'm not surprised we both love it. Moving on. Our next article is actually an ideas report. Guys, get ready for something a little unconventional. For the new creative world order. <laughs> yes, truly. We're like going from old world to new world. Um, right. We Transfer created this ideas report. and. It is a website with a whole lot of design and typography. I'll give you an overview. It's basically a report. Um, you can, I believe, download the PDF or something like that. But if you just go through the website, you'll get like a book of the ideas in it. Talks about different demographics um, around the world, designers around the world, and kind of how designers think and how they feel. They talk about designers specifically in Latin America. They talk about Gen Z designers. They talk about the great resignation and designers in the workplace, how they're feeling, design thinking that they are moving towards, how some designers don't even care about awards anymore, how clients view designers. It's a lot of statistics, but it is like a very avant-garde way to display these statistics, which I'm into, but I'm curious how you feel. Well, I have to be honest, when I first looked at the site, I didn't get a ton out of it. And I was just like confused by what I was looking at at first. And it wasn't until I downloaded the full report that I realized that there was actual information in here. It wasn't just like stylized. Mm -hmm. And then I went back and I was like, oh, all of the same things are on the website. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think the interaction of it threw me for a loop a little bit. I think what is really interesting is a bunch of what they're talking about are uh, like comparison between Gen Z and uh, previous generations and mm -hmm. comparisons between women in creative fields or Latin American designers and how they like are earning less. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the kind of stuff that uh, I don't I don't necessarily think that like the design helps enforce these things that they're sharing, mm. but it is great that they're sharing. And at the same time, the design makes you want to look at it. And so eventually you find the information. And so it does its job. You know what I mean? Yeah, I feel similarly. At first I was like, what is this new wave design? But then it kind of just like unfolds and you start understanding the logic. And I actually do like certain elements that they're using in the design. Have you noticed the beautiful use of contrast and scale to help your mm -hmm. eye move from section to section and like read statistics and it's just like kind of a new way to organize information that I've been up to. But yeah, I agree. Pretty interesting. The creative genius less these days. They kind of want creatives that are more human and more relatable rather than you're like Don Draper, very bold, very like 
I'm like the messiah complex kind of guy. <laughs> I thought it was interesting to like bring in those statistics. I don't quite understand where they're getting these survey numbers from, but I trust that they have sources. Well, yeah, I assumed that they did a survey. I guess I didn't look yeah. that deep into it, but I assumed that they did a survey and that was where this information came from. I mean, that's my assumption. I probably well. shouldn't be agreeing or disagreeing without knowing. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Also, I forgot WeTransfer existed, so that's kind of interesting. Good work on them for reminding us that they're still there. Yeah. I think them and Dropbox both almost unexpectedly have like very strong in-house design teams to work because they know a lot of creatives use their product. It's like, I think something that's emerged in the past few years. Yeah, I've always wondered about that. I do know a lot of very well-known designers who work at Dropbox or something like that, and I'm kind of like, man, what are you guys doing? Right. Why? This is what they're doing. This is it. I guess so, yeah. All right. Two more links, guys. This next one's just kind of fun. Papa John's rebranded. <laughs> new brand identity, new logo. Drop the apostrophe from John's. It's just Papa John's. He actually changed his whole name. Changed his name. I mean, it, it definitely was John, has and now it's John's. Yeah. I mean, I no, think they. <laughs> I think it's open ended. Clearly, they made this change because. There was, oh yeah, John Schnatter used to be the founder, said mm. some pretty terrible controversial things a couple years ago, and I think that was maybe a reason why they dropped the apostrophe. So it's like, it's not owned by John, right? Is that it? It's not John's papa. It's just Papa John's. Well, well <laughs> no, it was like Papa John's pizza. Like Papa John had the recipe for the pizza. Got it. It was his pizza. And now they're trying to be like, you know the name, but it's no longer the person. Which I think is fine. Also, I think that probably helps their logo design. I hate designing around apostrophes or <laughs> I guess or that's fair. It's a weird little stuff like weird that. little number in there. But I don't know what your opinions are on this, but like this is not an improvement in my eyes. I don't like the logo. I don't like it, guys. <laughs> I've been trying to like it. I've been actually reading about this since yesterday. Brand new. I know they're behind a paywall, but I, I subscribe to them, so I was reading their evaluation. Um, it was like fairly positive, but I know they're trying to keep the shape of Papa John's. That's why they have that like top arc of the letter forms. I just think it's like meh, not very inspiring. It's pretty awkward. Yeah. I like that they have a new typeface. It's fun. Some people are comparing it to the Burger King rebrand, how it's like a pretty similar, you know, fat yeah. typeface. I mean I the Burger it. King rebrand was creative. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, I mean, anybody who's working on this, but in general, if you guys go in the article and click into the press release, there's like a fun sizzle reel that shows all the elements of the brand identity. I think in general, the brand identity itself is stronger than the logo. I don't know if I can get behind that logo, but I think in general, they're trying to move onwards and upwards. Okay. Okay. First of all, yeah, for sure. I agree. They're obviously trying to like change their image and it's a rebrand, right? And so they're trying to like get away from the weird awkwardness of their past founder and be like, we're new and different. And that's fine. I guess I see what you're talking about with the secondary typeface being like the Burger King, right? Like there's like the ink traps and it's kind of like a little goofy. And I consider that the new hipster. Mm. trying to reference some old weird font in like a goofy way with like super bold colors and big bold typography 
I really wish that they had rebranded as PJs. I think that would be funny. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> to me, honestly, there's no point. Papa John's pizza is the tastiest of all the bad pizza. Okay, we can start that debate on this podcast <laughs> if you want to, because it is the least tastiest in my mind. I but knew that was going to fire you up. Okay, okay. Keep on going. I am like sweaty and turning up. Keep on going. <laughs> I honestly just threw that in to, to get you riled up. I mean, it's true. I do have that opinion. However, that doesn't have anything to do with the rebrand. I just did that to fire you up. Mm-hmm. But honestly, I think the rebrand just doesn't matter. It's still Papa John's. It's still Papa John's pizza. I'm not sure what the point was. Yeah, it's interesting. I think one of the more successful rebrands in the past 10 years was like when Domino's started actually considering their design on their packaging. I'm not just saying this because I think Domino's is better than Papa John's. That came along with something really interesting, though, in that when they started doing that, they started innovating with technology. Interesting. Yes, I do remember that. Mm-hmm. That makes and sense. And that differentiated them. So it was no longer just like, oh, we're putting some cool graphics on our boxes. Ta-da, we're Domino's. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know what? We're changing what Domino's is going to be. We didn't like what it was before. We're going to make it better. And they did. Yeah. And this, right. you know, Papa John's, as far as I can tell, they haven't changed anything. Just slap some new colors and fonts on. Yeah, they're like reskinning it. Interesting. Yeah. I've been thinking about this rerun for a while, but I'm glad we... <laughs> We chatted about it. I mean, obviously the logo is an improvement on what they used to have, but like, I just don't think that's the bar we should be setting these days. You know what I mean? Why? Why? Why is it obviously an improvement? Oh my God, their old logo. I mean, like I don't have it in front of me, but it was like pretty disastrous from like a modern, huge fast food brand. Okay, well, here's the thing. I'm okay, putting I it just, in front I, of me. I want to explore this because in the context of design, this this is almost like an art school discussion, right? Okay. Why is it an improvement to change the fonts? Uh, you should Google it. There's like, I'm looking at the two compared. And they're A, not that different, but B, different enough that before when you saw it, you knew it, you were used mm-hmm. to it. And so it would like catch your eye, you'd know what it was. Now it's like just enough that you're kind of like, wait, is that the same thing or is that a different thing? Oh, no. Okay. I disagree. I feel like the shape that they kept, as much as I don't like the shape, helps me be like, oh, yeah, that's Papa John's. I would think it was like a knockoff. If you hadn't put this in front of me, I honestly would have thought it was like a knockoff rival brand. Do you advocate for the the stroke outline of the shape that's the holding shape for the old Papa John's logo? Not specifically, but what I'm advocating for is I don't think there was any good reason to change it that I read about. And why change it? Why do you need a circle? Why do you need like a stroke around your logo? It just feels dated. Okay. I get why you feel that way. I don't disagree. It does. It does feel dated. However, I don't think the new one feels any more modern. I think it just feels blander. I'm going to simmer with that thought. I'm going to simmer with that thought because <laughs> okay. I, don't, I don't necessarily agree or disagree. So I'm going to keep that with me. I am curious what everybody else thinks because this was kind of uh, an unanticipated debate, which is kind of interesting. I don't think either one of us are fully prepared to make a whole point on either mm-hmm. side. So, you know, if, if anybody has any thoughts on this, we have a Twitter, we have an Instagram, we have an email. Yeah. Curious Shout what you're out. thinking. I know it has... 
I think creative block, I've been like looking up some of the articles, has totally like panned it. Like their headline is the new Papa John's logo makes absolutely no sense. And they're really upset about the apostrophe situation, (laughs) which I'm like not upset about that. But hey, they're just upset because it I mean, it doesn't make any sense without the apostrophe. They're like, it's missing the apostrophe. And with it, the implication that Papa John's no longer belongs to Papa John. So (laughs) I think they're missing the point that they're trying to separate themselves from this being possessed by anyone. But it doesn't make a difference. It's like It doesn't really make a difference. You're not thinking about the apostrophe in your mind. And also, I do feel like it is almost a modern thing to start paring back unnecessary hyphenation and punctuation in logos. Just saying, I feel like we've done that with a few brands at JKR. Not saying that's finalized stuff, but it's something that we talk about when we look at a logo. Being like, do you need this? I don't think Papa John's needs it. I guess that's fair. And that is how I usually approach any design thing anytime. Do you really need all this? Exactly. I mean, just on the apostrophe, they did a good job with the apostrophe before. It still fit into the shape. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Whole thing's silly. The whole thing is silly, everybody. It it's all is silly. silly. It does feel silly. Go to Domino's. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> That's the argument I wanted to come out of this. <laughs> but do get the garlic sauce from Papa John's first. Just hop in, oh. get the 25 cent garlic sauce, and then go to Domino's. That okay. I, could, I could get on board with. I won't debate it. Final. All right. Final We've gone on way too long. I'm sorry. I know. Uh, no, it's fine. Just a quick little type industry news update. Monotype and Adobe announced new partnership that will make fonts available to brands and creative professionals is the headline. Basically, to get to the gist of it, Adobe original fonts like Minion or like Acumen or like Jensen will be available in Monotype fonts and my fonts. So it will be a little bit more streamlined if someone, if a designer licenses all their fonts through Monotype. It's now included in if you have a Monotype subscription. Or if you just want to license those fonts through my fonts, you can just do that there. Because what I believe is the situation is that the only way to get Adobe fonts to license them is through Adobe fonts right now. Like Adobe fonts, the software. The only way to get Adobe Originals. So I guess this does kind of extend the audience that can license Adobe Originals. To be honest, there's no Adobe Originals I like pine after. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the standard fonts that came with our Creative Cloud subscription when I first started art school that I was like trying to not use all Adobe Originals. (laughs) But I mean, there's still like some very massive heavy duty or coursey fonts there. It's interesting. It's not surprising. Monotype's just like gobbling up everything. So I don't know. Yeah, there's probably a whole nerd alert wrapped up in Monotype and Adobe and the state of conglomerates in the font industry. Mm-hmm. Side note. Yeah. I think this will still be true maybe up to the day that this is published, but I just found that Adobe's, this isn't an ad, but Adobe's mm. Creative Suite has like a Black Friday kind of deal. Mm-hmm. I unfortunately already pay too much money for those. And so my purchase is not supported. But (laughs) if you aren't already in that iron grip of Adobe's Mm -hmm. creative suite and you need to be, buy it before it's more expensive than it should be. Good tip. I like it. (laughs) Good salesman. (laughs) All right. I feel like we've like wrapped up this nice section with some cultural zeitgeist, with some really, really beautiful things to look at, and uh, 
with some classic monotype acquires another thing topic. So (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we've checked the list of staples on the weekly typographic. So off to our nerd alert. We've got a very special nerd alert today. Today on the podcast, we have Jasmine Holmes, the pricing queen and design superwoman. Some might know her from her Type Weekend talk, discovering the recipe to value-based pricing. But in general, she is just such an expert at, you know, pricing for creatives. We're going to have her on to talk about a few common mistakes and traps that creatives fall into when pricing. And we know there's a bunch. We know there's always room to improve. As a full-time freelancer, as a part-time freelancer, having a great price and value that reflects the value that you bring, so important. So this little talk here is going to be an amuse-bouche for the workshop we are so proudly offering with her next year called Charger Worth Recipes for Confident Pricing. So if this itches your scratch or starts making you rethink maybe how you're pricing your whole entire creative project and calendar year, or you just wanted to get a nice intro into how things could build once you start a business, please join us next year. But let's get into it. Hi, Jazz. Oh, hey. Yeah. (laughs) And you're joining us from way down under, right? Yeah, I am. Down here in the Aussie, definitely not outback. Let's just get that really clear. <laughs> I don't ride a kangaroo to work. What? I do call people mate. I'm so sorry. I've ruined the entire <sighs> illusion. The closest thing I have to a kangaroo is a dashhound named Cherit. I'm so sorry. Oh, I mean. But you do ride him to work. <laughs> definitely not. He is only six kilos. He is very small. <laughs> Well, I'm super excited for you to join us for this Nerd Alert. I think this is the first guest Nerd Alert that we have done, right, Olivia? Yeah, mostly just have Steph sometimes join us on the podcast. So this is the first guest Nerd Alert, and we hope to do more in the future. But we figured, you know, no one can talk about pricing the way you can, Jazz. And from your very unique, very much yourself point of view, with the pie puns included. So... Let's get that conversation going. I definitely want to talk about these three mistakes that you've gathered and why they're so easy to fall into and why we should watch out for these pricing mistakes. Yeah, for sure. So let's start off with a few core flavors of truth. You as a creative, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, what you do is unique what you do is special, what you do is valuable. I know Micah loves that word, valuable. So we really want to make sure that we highlight that just because we're doing something that we love, it doesn't mean that we get paid any less. It doesn't mean that we should sacrifice that. And the other core truth is pricing is hard, guys. Amen. (laughs) Yeah. It's like creating a meal for your family that you don't have a recipe for. You have no idea what you're doing. You have no idea how many people are going to turn up. And so the reason why pricing is really so hard is because you kind of haven't done it before. If you've worked in different studios or if you're fresh out of school, you actually haven't learned how to put a value dollar on your time, on your skills, on your effort, energy, blood, sweat, tears, and whatever other weird ingredients that you add. So the reason why it's so hard is because you haven't done it before. There was a time that you didn't know how to use a spoon. 
that used to be difficult. <laughs> now you are nailing it. You are like, you know what? I can choose between a spoon or fork and I know that soup is not a fork dish. So this is the thing. When it comes to pricing, it's really important to understand that it's hard for everyone. It's really difficult for everyone and it's really important that you enter it knowing that. None of us have it nailed. Come on. We just have the particular project or the particular thing that we're working on and we've priced it in a certain way and we'll either win and get the money and be happy with the exchange or we'll learn and apply it to the next one. So I just want to kind of get that out of the way at the top before we kind of start. Yeah, I think it's really important. That's a good vibe to think about it with, that it's either the successful interaction or a learning opportunity. Yeah, we don't fail here. I think that's such a good point that none of us start with the pricing knowledge. Sometimes people will get out of design school and become freelancers immediately and they have to figure it out on their own. Did you have any instruction going into freelancing on how to price or did you have to really figure everything out on your own as well? To give you some kind of clarity, I've been doing this design thing for about 14 years and the last seven of those have been full-time freelance. So the first seven were working in design studios, we're working in creative studios, we're working in places that defined my price for me. I even remember as I was graduating TAFE, uh, my kind of last days, uh, so TAFE, tertiary education, kind of an equivalent to a trade school, I guess. I even remember saying to my lecturer at the time, how much do I charge? And he's like, okay, we'll fresh out $35 an hour. And I was like, okay, that's the start. And I can tell you right now, plenty more in that 14 years. And that's because my worth has grown. My understanding of what I can provide is grown. And also my skills, not only just with what I actually produce, but the skill of being able to pull out the actual deliverables from a client's brief, not just what they want, but what they actually need. And those two are not always the exact same serving. They are sometimes very, very different. I think pricing knowledge and pricing confidence largely comes from experience, not just saying years, but experiencing different situations, experiencing different businesses, different clients, and realizing that we are all intrinsically human. We all operate completely differently. And the more experience and more exposure you can get to these different situations and people, places, things, you can then include that in what you learn. And then that knowledge grows and therefore then value grows. And therefore you can charge more because you're showing up as a more valuable option than someone who doesn't have that experience both in years and in experiences. That's a good point. That I love that. And I think what makes it so special that you're here today is that like, wouldn't it be great when we were all starting out instead of having a professor just say, here's the number to charge, like actually have some reason behind what we're charging. <laughs> and I know that I would have been the person being like, okay, why? Like then, and then the, the, the <laughs> right. professor would be like, okay, get out. And I'm like, damn it. <laughs> right. <laughs> because there has to be a reason. If you price your work based on a, on a gut feeling, you're going to go hungry. Like you're going to go so hungry and you're also going to be disappointed because it's not necessarily going to be the meal that you wanted. Mm-hmm. Shoot, you're describing my life right now. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the funny thing. I'm describing mine too. I think mm. that as creators, we feel quite isolated and especially when we're freelancing or we feel quite isolated in that we're the only one that goes is going through whatever we're going through. Um, sorry to hit it where it hurts and a bit of a gut punch, but what makes you so special? 
Uh, like what makes you so special that you're the only one going through it? I can tell you right now, if you reach out to almost any creative on Instagram and say, hey, like, are you okay with your pricing? They'll be like, oh, go away, ow. Um, because we're all like so connected to it. And so, you know, we're, we're so used to putting a dollar amount on our value, but having to recognize that it's different from our worth as a person is very, very important. Yep. I'm getting Absolutely. deep, man. I'm getting deep. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love it. And I feel like I'm just the anticipation for what you have been prepared for for today is growing. So let's get started with pricing trap number one. Okay, so pricing trap number one. Pricing like it's coming out of your own back pocket. I definitely have fallen into this trap more than once over the last bazillion years. So, so often when we are pricing what we do and what we do well, we get tripped up and tangled in our own thoughts and feelings about what money means to us, what our thoughts and feelings are when it comes to money. So if you see a price of something, basically anything from the corner store right through to online shopping, and at time of recording, we are just before Black Friday and Cyber Monday sales. So I can tell you right now, it is more relevant than ever that we understand and recognize dollar value. So any price that you see written down in front of you, your first thought is, would I pay for that, whatever the item it is? And that's because we've trained ourselves through our entire lives to weigh up every purchase, every advertisement, every dollar sign that we see against whether we can afford it and whether we can afford to buy it or not and whether it's worth that amount to us. Now, the key is separating those two thoughts of this is what it costs and this is what I'm paying because in this situation, only one of those is true because we're charging the client they aren't paying using our money. They're paying with either their own money or money that has been budgeted to hire and pay for talent. And this time we're lucky enough that the talent that they've chosen to invest in is asked. And it's actually recognizing that that's the key there. That's the really important thing is that they've chosen to work with us. And on that when you assume what your client values rather than asking or researching, you are playing a really dangerous game that can actually result in not only not winning the job, but insulting the client. So I personally have had clients that have come back to me after I've quoted and I've known that they've had other people quote and they've said that I was the more expensive option, but they went with me because I made it clear that I was the better fit when I showed my passion and my problem solving abilities in the communication before they hired me. A client that actually values the cheaper option won't always be the client for you. And this is something that you can either learn at the start, in the middle, or at the end of the creative journey with that particular client, because that's going to be a really big definer of, do I want to work with this client again? Do they value me? And is it worth the time that I'm going to have to invest? So it's really important that we remember that when we're saying here, client, this is the cost that's not something that we're paying. That's something that we're charging. And we're working out whether it's worth our time, not worth us paying it. Mm. It's a beautiful, just like metaphor that I felt like I really needed, especially when you're on your own and you're just like kind of just thinking and you get the email being like, what's the budget or like, what's the charge for this? And you're just like, uh, and that's like where the fear sets in being like, I wouldn't pay $5,000 to hire me. You're not the client. You're not the target market. <laughs> exactly. 
So yeah, good. most definitely. Because I actually, um, as soon as you said the word budget, my stomach just went nuts and I was like, no, <laughs> um, <laughs> just a visceral reaction to the word budget. It's fine. But it's really a large importance in recognizing that that's the situation that everyone's been in. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can rely on your network. You can rely on just, you know, a couple of other small local freelancers or like creating a small mastermind between you and a couple of friends who are all creatives. Like it's really important that if you don't have what you need, you go and seek it out. And if you can create that for yourself, that's even better. Mm. Okay. I'm extremely curious now. Like that one hit home. What's trap number two? So feeling guilty about charging for doing (laughs) something you love. Uh, Sorry, Micah, hit you right where it hurts. (laughs) Both have so far, so this is great. Yeah, great. So um, I hope you wore some kind of bulletproof vest sort of thing because uh, I'll tell you, I'm not aiming to hurt, I'm aiming to help. (laughs) So this is a massive thing when I think about all of this. It, I think, stops creatives in their tracks because they've been drummed into them from an early childhood that if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life, like all of that. And I'm sure you're familiar with the starving artist mentality that we as creatives chose a career that is creative and enjoyable and therefore our payout is the love of what we do. (laughs) Nope, wrong, incorrect, no. (laughs) Passion may be the driver, but the meter is definitely running. So I actually once had a student say to me, but I can't charge that much. I enjoy what I do. Like it was applying some kind of like automatic discount code, like you're not allowed to. So I'm here to tell you right now that there is someone out there who froths a good Excel spreadsheet. There's someone out there who gets pure joy from cleaning. There's someone out there that thrives on talking to customers and solving problems. Now, none of these traditionally fall into a creative field, but they all get that happy, full belly feeling from what they do and they get paid. So like, why shouldn't you? They are exhibiting a skill in exchange for dollars. It's the same situation. You're allowed to enjoy what you do. And like I mentioned before, most of these companies or businesses or even individuals that are in the market to hire someone, some genius, creative genius like you, they're doing it because they have the budget to do so. It sounds weird, but I truly believe that some of our clients have budgets and they don't know what to do with them. They don't know how to spend it and they don't know what they need. We as the creative professionals in the relationship need to act as the problem solvers and deliver these solutions, recognizing that they have, and here we go, Mitch's favorite word, they have value. And so we're providing that for them. The reason why they're hiring us is not because they want to see us happy. It's because they need the service and they can't do it themselves or they don't want to do it themselves because there's a convenience tax but we shouldn't be feeling guilty about doing something that we love for money. It's what we do well. So we should be paid well. Okay. That's interesting. That brings me back to one or two moments in my life where I recognized that I wasn't great at doing something, even if I liked it, and that somebody could do it better. And paying them to do that thing was a win because it got done as good as I wanted it to get done when I wouldn't have been able to do it as well. And that feels... Like I can maybe take that mentality and apply it to a potential customer being like, hey, I love good design, but I know that if I did it, you know, it just wouldn't turn out how I want it. And if they're the one who 
is in that position too. They might not even know how to describe how to make the good thing that they want. And so it's sort of like my experience and my talent and my skills in being able to figure out what a good thing would be for them is valuable in that situation. Yeah. Look at you using your own favorite word. And so it's it's really important that like you are that amazing person for someone else. You always will be. That's because you have this intrinsic ability. Like I, I can tell you right now, I've got people in my network that I have specifically because I know that they do what they do really well and it's something that I can't do or something I can do, but I can't do it as well as them. I actually, um, so I'm in a co-working space. I've got my own studio, but a couple of doors down, there's a bunch of guys who do video and digital marketing. Now it's something that I can do. It's a service that I can offer, but I know that if I collaborate with them or if I work with them and I have in the, uh, in the very recent past and we do the job and split the profit, it's going to actually be much better quality. It's actually going to raise my reputation for what I can be delivering. And it also means that it'll probably get done better, faster, and be a better result at the end. And I'm not sure about you. Actually, no, I'm sure about you guys. You would want to be delivering and serving up your best work possible almost every time. And so if you can do that while collaborating with others or being part of that, that's a really brilliant skill to have. And sometimes that's collaborating with a client, but sometimes that's collaborating with a fellow creative, but you're delivering something that's really valuable because it is to the client, not necessarily to you. Yeah. Number three. Number three. Let's hear it. I was waiting. (laughs) Number three. Let's wrap up this trio. Basing your prices on other people's prices. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So. Big trap. Big trap. Yeah. Massive trap. Bear trap. In you get. (laughs) A lot of people, especially like starting out, that's probably where your professor's answer came from was like other people charge $35. So I don't know. Start there. Yeah, for sure. So I had this happen to me very, very recently, like a couple of weeks ago. So I had a student of mine say, I basically sent them some work and they said, what do you charge? I'll charge a little less. I actually had a student say this to me recently and I had to stop him and say, why? Why? And whilst this may be a good strategy to work out your market rate or understand what the client might be used to paying or what other people are paying, it's not the way to price your skills and time. You also need to understand your own recipe for your own daily expenses and expectations so that you can cover yourself. In this situation, if you're going to ask what is someone else charging, it's a good opportunity for you to kind of do some market analysis and pick five and work out where you sit within that five lineup. And then you can kind of say, okay, that's probably where I should be basing it. But then recognizing that it's all about what you deliver, what your situation is. So let's run this scenario. So what if you set your prices based on someone else's rates but theirs isn't enough to cover your own expenses and you go bust. Or you get so busy and overwhelmed that now you're overbooked and you can't deliver to the clients you're attracting, who, by the way, are seeking you out because you're cheap, not quality. Clients who value cheap work don't get to dine on your quality. That's just not fair. So taking the time to run your numbers in your business not only makes financial sense now, 
but it's also setting you up to aim higher, to progress further, and to be able to budget for when things change or grow or shrink. So say you had your rate now based on your current expenses and your plan for take-home dollar reduce, but then you need to upgrade a piece of equipment in your business or you want to earn an extra 10K in the next year. Knowing your numbers now means that it's simply adding those ingredients to the recipe and creating the rate from those new numbers. It means that it takes a lot of the gut feeling out of it as well because if you're seeing that the calculations mean this and then I follow that number and then you add to it or you alter it or change it, then you're actually you're not having to be okay with that gut feeling. You'll also be feeling more comfortable of someone else saying, okay, now time to raise it, time to put it up. And these are the reasons. This is what's important. This is what, this is why you need to be doing it. Okay. Absolutely. That makes sense. That goes back to something I always tried to tell my friends while freelancing. If someone says no to your price, that's fine. If you're just getting everyone saying, yep, that sounds good. Yep, that sounds good. Yep, that price sounds good likely you can charge higher. Yeah. Not only because you've got like demand, respond Mm -hmm. to demand. I really resonate with that. I mean, I had a price that I really thought was my value for a long time as a freelancer. I was always a little uncomfortable being like, oh, I think people are going to think this is too high. Out of like four clients, one of them said no. And the rest were like, yeah, yeah, you're worth it. I'll do that. So it works. Jazz, excellent advice. Yeah. And responding to market rates actually a really important part of the creative journey, a really important part of your pricing journey, because realistically, if you get too busy, you can't deliver. If you get to a point where you're not able to handle the work that's coming in, you will end up having clients that are disappointed. And not only will they be disappointed, but then they'll have this misconception of this is the price for this kind of the designer and they disappointed me. Therefore, that's what they're worth. And that's not okay. So we want to continuously be leveling up, upsizing, whatever up-ism you want to be putting into it and having that correlate directly with the new value that we're providing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so with it. Jazz, you're going to be back with us next month, January 8th and 9th, everybody. Mark your calendars. Just quick 60-second, what can people expect to learn if they're already excited about this conversation? Okay, guys, I really hope that you turn up with your pie-eating pants on because, quite honestly, you're going to need to stretch your waist for this. This is going to be a lot. It's going to be not only filling your stomach but filling your mind with all the pricing recipes that you can serve in your business. We're going to really deep dive into how do we work out our rates? How do we work out the value of our time? And then use this as the recipe base for all the different ways we're going to price. And we're going to look at different ways and different structures that they can then be placed in. So day one, work out your rates. Day two, let's serve. Let's serve to the masses, let's serve to the clients, and let's serve ourselves a decent helping of the pie so we can have our pie and eat it too. Incredible. That's all I need. You love it. You know you love it. (laughs) Mic drop. Oh my gosh. I'm so ready. Thank you so much, Jazz. It's been such a pleasure having you on today. And we'll be seeing you soon with a few other folks from our community. It's going to be great. 
before we go, before we go, I want to let everyone know, anyone who's listening here, if they would like to grab a free sample, you know, tasting sample as they pass through, head to easyaspiepricing.com slash league to grab your free taster sample of my pricing calculator. It'll be there ready for you to work out the dollar value of your billable hour. And then we'll go from there. Incredible. I love it. Do-do-do-do. Do-do-do-do.